as ever, great to be here with you all uh, to, this morning to dwell um, as one body, the body of Christ in this place and at this time. And if you're a visitor today, just want to extend a special welcome to you. We're delighted you're here. If you'd like to learn more about Christ the King, what's going on in, in the congregation, just speak to me afterwards or to Jeffers, our vestry person of the day, or any of our ushers. They'll be glad to, to answer any questions you may have. Let me take a moment to pray. Come, Holy Spirit, these words inspire and fill them with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters. And if you are not, nothing else matters. Amen. Amen. Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 11, which I've just read for you. You find a parallel account in Luke, which uh, was just read for us outside by Marie, and it's predicted in the Old Testament reading, which Laurie read for us a moment ago. Uh, in Mark 11, in the context of Mark's gospel, is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. From this moment onwards, things begin to escalate and intensify. It all starts when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem in a conspicuous, attention-grabbing manner. Now, Jesus has, of course, been to Jerusalem before, but this time it's not the same game. Uh, we read about this in the first part of Mark 11, and you might call it a trigger event. Uh, it epitomizes Isaac Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, and we're going to learn about the opposite and equal reaction as we journey through Holy Week together in the next five or six days. But today, however, we're just going to zone in, zoom in uh, on that return to Jerusalem, the so-called triumphal entry, which we just sort of liturgically remembered and celebrated as we walked in here. It's the first 11 verses of the chapter. And as we delve into this highly significant symbolic incident, here's what we're going to discover. We're going to discover that Jesus is the king, but he's not like other kings, and he wants to be your king. Jesus is the king, but he's not like other kings. And he wants to be your king. That is what Mark is showing us. So let's give our attention to God's word. First, Jesus is the king. Uh, this is what he is very intentionally communicating about himself in a considered and even somewhat confrontational way today. Now, up until this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been somewhat secret about his identity. When he does miracles and healings, he resurrects people, casts out demons. He often says, don't tell anybody. Keep it secret. Always says that. He does not want the publicity. Why? Because heightened publicity leads to heightened pressure, and heightened pressure on the religious and civic leaders, well, would make them need to stop him, to nip him in the bud. And that would, of course, meant the end of Jesus' ministry. But he still had a lot of things he needed to do and say, so it was always keep it secret. But now things are changing, and so a little bit of publicity is okay. This shift away from secrecy actually begins in Mark chapter 10. Jesus is walking through the town of Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, and he passes by a blind man that is called Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus is crying out in the street. And what does he call Jesus? Does he call him great teacher or rabbi or magic carpenter or good doctor? No, he doesn't call him any of those things. He says, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me. He might as well have said, oh, great and ultimate true Messiah, have mercy on me, because that is what son of David meant in this context. And Jesus hears that, and he doesn't silence Bartimaeus. He receives it because he's about to announce it anyway. And that's what he does when he gets to Jerusalem. Everything that happens in Mark 11, 
chapters 1 through 11, says, My arrival is the arrival of a king. Look there again at verses 7 through 9. Jesus gets on a little donkey. People spread their cloaks on the road. Big leafy branches are waving in front of the colt's feet as it walks along, and they're singing and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a grand, captivating entry. It's a royal procession of sorts. And in the ancient world, princes and generals and other uh, lofty types would do these sorts of processions or promenades. Roman generals did it. Uh, Israel's kings of old did it. Solomon does it in 1 Kings chapter 1 in the New Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 9, uh, Jehu, one of the princes of Israel, does it, and people throw their cloaks on the ground in front of him, just like they're doing for Jesus today. Here in South Carolina, men used to do that for women when they needed to walk across a mud puddle. Um, maybe some of you still do that, you chivalrous knights, you. What happens in verses 7 through 9 is kingly activity, and it's teeming with significance. This is the first and only time that we see Jesus riding an animal. Normally, Jesus is a power walker. He's zooming all around on his legs, all around the Holy Land. But today, uh, he's on an animal, and he's making a statement. He is departing from his uh, normal practice. Look there at verse 2. He is not riding a worn-out beast of burden. He's, right, he's, he's not in a used car. This is a colt. It's a fold. Nobody has ever sat on this little animal before, which is precisely why it would have been fitting for a king. That was the custom. It's the same now as it was then. King Charles III of England does not ride around in a used Rolls Royce. His posh hiney is not going to be sitting on any certified pre-owned leather, even if it comes from East Coast Hondas, where they do a really good job at cleaning up the cars. <laughs> And notice, too, that as Jesus goes on around, people are shouting out, and they're saying, Hosanna, what we were just singing. Now, what does that word mean? It does not mean, hooray, yippee, throw me some candy, throw me some beads. That is not what Hosanna means. This word comes from Psalm 118. That's a Passover psalm. And at this moment in Jerusalem, right where Jesus is, it's Passover. And Passover was about remembering God's faithfulness and the freedom he gave from Egypt in the book of Exodus, we all know a lot about that now because we spent time in there during Lent. But Passover is also about remembering the way God is going once again to rescue and redeem His people. And so this language of Hosanna is Passover language. It's, la it's the language of longing and waiting. It literally means save us now. That's what Hosanna means. Save us now. And that's what you say to a king or to God or to both if they happen to be two in one, which is who Jesus is. So there's a true king here. The Jews call him the Messiah. People are perceiving it. They're preparing the way, laying out the palm branches and the jackets. This is what Jesus is intentionally conveying through the triumphal entry. It's blatant Messiah self-advertisement. Jesus is coming out. The king has arrived. Yet while Jesus is a king, he's not like other kings. He does not fit the typical profile. And this is going to be a bit of a surprise to some of those people who are waving the branches it was a bit of a surprise to some of his disciples. It's going to be a bit of a surprise to some of us. Look at verse 10. It says, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna. Now, when, people, when these people who are there see Jesus as a king, they see him as a king kind of like King David in the Old Testament or King Solomon or the other ancient kings of Israel or kings in Babylon or Rome or England. He's, he's a king like that. He's just on their side. They finally got a king that is on their side. That's what the palm wavers think. 
This is what modern psychologists call motivated cognition. When they look at Jesus, they see more of what they want than what he actually is. It's motivated cognition. And we have a tendency to do the same thing. Of course, Jesus knows this, which is why at the very moment of his debut as the king, we find him flipping the idea of kingship on its head, upside down. And he does this in several ways. Let's look at a few of these details. First, there's his vehicle. We talked about the colt earlier, never been ridden before. little colt here, but there's something more to see. In the ancient world, when kings and generals paraded on in, they did indeed ride animals, but not usually little donkeys. That was not often their vehicle of choice. They rode mighty steeds, war horses, thoroughbreds. But with Jesus, it's different. One of my favorite commentators captures this really well. He says, Jesus is actually making a satire of triumphal entries because he's riding a little ass. He's riding in on a little ass. He might as well have been sitting on a Great Dane. It's almost comical. Listen to this explanation. Kings and victors in the battles of old did not ride into their city on little asses, but on fearsome horses. But not this king. He does not, he will not triumph through the force of arms. So he's on a lowly pack animal. That's commanding symbolism. Don't miss that. Uh, Okay, I want to pause just here to think about that symbolism and what God is saying through this to us right now and today. Let me put it like this. Uh, Jesus is, he's definitely the king who has arrived to save his people. Uh, He's definitely the answer to the Hosanna cry. But he's not going to do that like typical kings. Typical kings who would kill and crush their opponents and then seize power. That's not his MO. He's going to do it by losing power and by laying down his life and dying. And that is the great paradox of the Christian gospel. Christ the King saves me in weakness. He saves you all in weakness. One of my favorite poets, I don't read a ton of poetry, but I have one guy that I really like. You can ask Cindy. He's called Malcolm Guide, and he says this. He says, on the cross, loss becomes gain, and death opens into birth. Here, wounding heals, and fastening makes free. That's how it is with this king. So how does that land in our lives? Here's one way. It means that we are not saved through our strength, but rather by weakness. Jesus does not show up as a strong Savior who said, like Gaston in Beauty and the Beast, who says, you know, watch me and do likewise. Look how strong I am. Look how moral I am. Look how powerful I am. Do this and you're going to get saved too. That is not how he shows up. And so I am sad to break it to you. I mean, I'm actually happy to break it to you. Uh, that, that, that's not the Jesus of the Bible, even though I know some of you think it is. You've got to be strong. You've got to be moral in order to get saved. That is not at all how Jesus operates. But that would be salvation for the strong. And salvation for the strong wouldn't work for most of us. Actually, it wouldn't work for any of us, but I'm going to be gentle on your egos. It wouldn't work for most of us. But salvation by weakness is great because that means anyone can be saved. Anyone can be saved. Because all you have to do to get saved is to die to yourself, to give up your ego, let go of your pride, let go of your smug, self-righteous sense of self-sufficient delusion, let go of all of that and cry out to help. And I can receive divine grace in spite of all of my failures and flaws and shortcomings. You just have to admit you're weak. And that means that anybody can be saved. Anybody. Now that may be news for some people in the room here. 
Some of you might have an impression about Christianity that's different. Maybe you came up in a different church tradition and they sent a different message. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that was the case. Maybe you have some skewed impression about how you get saved. If you do, today is the day to let that go because you need to start listening to Jesus himself. And by the way, this is no different than what Jesus was always talking to his first disciples about because like some of us, they were pretty confused about what God is like and how God operates, what his MO was. Some of those first disciples, they wanted Jesus to come as a Messiah who was a warrior prince that would spank the Romans and send them back to Italy with their tail between their legs. That's what they wanted the Messiah to be because they thought the Romans were ruining the world. And so they wanted God to judge those Romans. That would be salvation. But they were wrong. Because what was actually needed is someone to come down and bear judgment for them. Because they were the ones ruining the world. Everybody in the human race is part of that. I'm part of that. You're part of that. That's what the Bible teaches, and I believe it's absolutely true. And so we all need pardon. We all need to be healed spiritually and morally. It's not just those iniquitous people over there, the Romans, the Nazis, uh, the Putinites, the people in San Francisco my neighbors who aren't cutting their grass every week and they're lowering the value of my property. It's not just those people, it's also us. We all need pardon. And that's why we need a different kind of king. Jesus is the kind of king we need. Now there's one other way Jesus reveals that he's not like other kings. This is in verse 11. It's really easy to miss, but it's crucial. Let me read you that verse. It says, Jesus comes on into Jerusalem, stops at the 7-Eleven, Gets a piece of beef jerky. I'm sorry, that's a different translation. Goes straight to the temple mount, looks around, and then calls it a night. Hmm. That's a little bit anticlimactic. In fact, there's a lot happening here. The temple that Jesus visited is, is the heart of Israel's religious and cultural life. It's the core symbol of national identity. And in Israelite history, and at this time, it was seen to be the place where God's presence, the Shekinah glory of God, was to dwell. Yet by the time Jesus has come along, that spiritual reality, shall we say, is past tense. And we know that because of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. I know you've all spent a lot of time in Ezekiel. Um, and so I'm just going to be telling you what you already know, but humor me for a minute. Let's go back to Ezekiel chapter 11 in the Old Testament. And that chapter tells us that the presence and the glory of the Lord actually left the temple and the city of Jerusalem. God took his leave. And when God did this, and this is really interesting and important detail, his presence is literally said to have retreated up over the mountains on the east side of Jerusalem. That's how God left. He left the temple out of the city over the mountain on the east side of Jerusalem. And the mountain on the east side of Jerusalem is none other than the Mount of Olives, verse 1 of our chapter today. And that is the same mount that Jesus comes over and comes down when He arrives back in Jerusalem. He comes over the Mount of Olives, back down to the east gate of the city. So what does that mean? It means God is back. God is back. The ultimate king has returned. Now, in this kind of scenario, a king coming into a city, what would normally happen? They would normally march in on their big horse. They'd go to the center of the city, to the temple. They'd dismount, and they'd begin to make reforms and purge the temple of all the crass commercial interest. And that's what a lot of Jewish people wanted at this time. That's what uh, a leader 200 years before called Simon Maccabees. He actually came to Jerusalem, and he did something like that. Uh, and so they wanted Jesus to do that again. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus just looks around at everything. 
very boring by comparison. And here's the thing. Jesus has been at this spot before. He knows where everything is. This is not a reconnaissance mission. And let me tell you what is not on his mind. What is not on his mind is another package of short-term reforms for a corrupt temple system. So what on earth is going on here? This is a farewell gesture. The Greek word for he looked around means to take a commanding survey of the situation. One commentator says this. He says, this is a last survey around before something gets demolished. And that's exactly what's going to happen with that temple. And so it comes to this. God is back, but he's not back to reestablish residency in that temple anymore. In fact, Jesus has come to end all of that. Other kings, they try to reform it. Jesus is going to replace it. He's got something better in mind. What is that? Access. Access. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When it came to the temple in Jerusalem, there was always a little bit of irony. Because while the temple was a place where you would go and meet God, it was simultaneously a place with all kinds of walls and barriers. Come close, but not too close. And Israel's religious leaders at this time spent a lot of money, a lot of energy. They had a lot of contractors who maintained all those walls and barriers. So if you were a non-Jewish person, for example, you could not go closer than 100 meters to the temple. You had to stay that far back. If you were a Jewish woman, you could go a little bit up, but you couldn't go there. If you were a Jewish man, you could go a bit closer to the temple. If you were a priest or a Levite, you could actually go into the foyer. You could hang out in the narthex. If you were the chief priest, you could go into the inner room, the inner sanctum, and you could go there once a year. Come close, but not too close. It was access to God was regulated and restricted. And no temple reform is going to change that. The only thing that could change that is God himself showing up and saying, we're done with that. And that's what Jesus does. Here's how he puts it in John 14. He says, if you love me, if you keep my word, then I'm going to make my house in you instead of in a temple. So that temple's got to go so that we can recognize that we're the new temples of the Holy Spirit. How's that for access? That's good access. So as a true king and a king unlike all other kings, Jesus is God. And that means he has unlimited access to the eternal bliss of the Trinity. And with that unlimited access to that eternal bliss of the Trinity, he doesn't want to clutch it. He doesn't want to hoard it. He wants to share it. He wants to share it with everybody in this room and everybody in this world. He wants to dispense it liberally. That is his glory. He's not like other kings. He doesn't fit the categories. His throne is a cross. That's where Mark's leading us. So why on earth does Jesus ascend a cross-shaped throne? Why would he do that? And the answer is that he wants to be our king. So let me think about that as we close. Jesus wants to be our king. He wants to be my king and your king. Why does he want to be our king? There's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is that we need a king. We need a king. This is a great theme of the Bible, and it's true about all of us too. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll see that there are kind of two stages of Israel's existence. Stage one is existence without a king. Uh, you read about that in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, this is what you read. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And that did not work out very well. Just go read the book of Judges. It is one horror story after another. Parents, do not let your kids read this book until they're 18. That's the book of Judges. Uh, and then after that barbaric period, 
Israel moves into a second stage of existence, and they get a king at last. They get some kings, but different didn't prove better because 95% of the kings of Israel were an embarrassment to the crown they wore. Idolatry, greed, injustice, oppression, it just multiplies. You can read about it in the Old Testament. Two stages, same result. Things are going from bad to worse, and when the dust settles, it is abundantly clear that a super king, a Messiah, is needed. That is the story of the Old Testament. It ends on a dark note. It's kind of like the world we live in. Because on the one hand, we're surrounded by leaders, by men and women with economic and social and political power, and they let us down week after week, don't they? They make hollow promises. They're going to start doing that again in the next few months when we get ready for the next election cycle. Hollow promises. They pander. They feather their own nests. They are deceitful and corrupt and ruthless, and that applies to all sides of the aisle. Or as Dolly Parton puts it, they let you dream, but you just watch them shatter because you're nothing but a step on somebody's ladder. I love Dolly Parton. We are surrounded by bad kings. They mess things up. They mess us up. But here's the thing on the other hand, and we've got to be honest about this. Things aren't always that much better in those areas of our lives where we get to be our own kings and queens, where we get to decide what we're going to do and who we're going to be, where we get to lead ourselves, at least if you're like me, because I am an expert at botching things up for myself and for my neighbors, and I add to the pain and brokenness of the world on a weekly and daily basis, and we all do this. We can't help it. It's deja vu to the book of Judges. And if you don't believe me, what I'm saying here has been powerfully confirmed by a guy called Daniel Gilbert. He runs the Happiness Project at Harvard. I read his book a few years ago, and I've been thinking about it a lot since then. I learned a lot from his book. Here's one thing I learned that I want to share with you. When it comes to doing life in a way that enhances our happiness and well-being, we often, very often, get it wrong. This is statistically data-backed conclusion. This is how Gilbert puts it. He says, you are wrong to believe that that new car is going to make you as happy as you imagine it will. You are wrong to believe that a new kitchen will make you happy for as long as you imagine it will. You are even wrong to believe that that cheeseburger you order in a restaurant, whether it's this week or next week or this afternoon, is definitely going to hit the spot. It's not. That's because when it comes to predicting exactly how you will feel in the future, you are most likely wrong. All of us. And here's how the cards fall. We humans, he says, do not understand what we want. We are not adept at improving our well-being. We live in a world of bad kings and queens. There's a long list of them, and we're on that list too. That's why we need a king, a true king. Jesus knows this. The question is, do you know it? Do you know it? But Jesus doesn't just know we need a true king. He is also the arrival of the true king. He is the king, the only king, who can restore all the harmony and beauty and goodness and health and glory that we were created for. We cannot give those things to each other, at least in a way that is consistent and lasting. But he can. He can enter into the rubble and mess and chaos of our lives and bring wholeness and restoration and peace and joy. And this is something that St. Mark also makes clear in our passage. This is probably my favorite part of the story today. It's, it's a message that comes through subtly but definitely. I think some of you have probably already caught wind of this. But look again at verse 2. I'm going to go back to that cult one more time. The cult on which Jesus rides is one on which Nobody has ever sat. Do you know what that means? 
I do because I grew up on a, with a farm with some horses and some ponies. Um, here's the thing. You cannot just jump on an unbroken animal like this, and you certainly cannot ride an untamed, unbroken ass through a crowd of people howling and waving palm branches unless you want to have a bucking bronco experience. That's what will happen. But not so with Jesus. Because in the midst of all this fanfare, an unbroken cult remains calm under the hand of the Messiah. He did not break this cult before writing it. Under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace come about. And that's how it is with us too. When Jesus becomes our king, he doesn't come to break us. He brings his powerful yet gentle and healing hand into our lives to bring restoration and peace and joy. And he does that in a way that's so, so different from all the other kings. Because Jesus doesn't have an agenda. He doesn't have an ulterior motive. He's not trying to get something out of you. There's no subtext. His words and his life make this clear. Listen to his words. What do you hear? He says, when you have power, don't lord it over people. He teaches that to his disciples. I love that teaching. I wish we practiced it more. And then what about his life? When you look at his life, what do you see? You see that he came to serve and not to be served. People had dirty feet back then. Normally, you'd wash the rabbi's feet, but in this, with, with this rabbi, he washes your feet. We're going to do that on Thursday night. He came to serve and not be served. So he is one who practices what he preaches. His crown is made of thorns. His throne is a cross. And his body, when it was finally anointed, it didn't have royal oil put on it. It had lacerations from a whip, and it had nails from, from a, put through his hands and his feet. And he didn't deserve any of that because never, never had there been a better life in this world. But he did that, and he did that for you and for me and for all of our neighbors in Polly's Island so that we might have some chance at having hope and joy and peace in this chaotic world of ours. Now, if that does not eradicate any mistrust or suspicion or ill will you have towards Christianity and Christ especially, I think you need to ask yourself why. I think you need to ask yourself why. Has anybody else died for you like this? Given their life for you? Served your life and your existence in this way and to this extent? So I want to leave you with this question. On this Palm Sunday, will you crown Christ in your heart? Will you crown him in your heart? Will you look to him and say, Hosanna? Everything that Jesus Christ offers us is what we would want for ourselves if we knew everything that God knows. Let me say that again. Everything that Jesus Christ offers for us is what we would want for ourselves if we knew what God knows. We need to start trusting this. Hosanna. The king has arrived.